What is up, listening audience? Thank you so much for downloading our content again. Today is a great day to listen to a podcast, isn't it? I think so, and you must think so if you're listening. I'm being silly, but I'm Jake Wiskirchen, your host, and today's interview is with Juana Trian, who is quite the dynamo in many respects. She is an artist, and she is a free speech advocate. She is a Hungarian Jew who has a great cultural perspective. Her family fled some atrocities in Europe. Uh, we talk about all that, and we talk about a number of things relevant to today's culture and society, especially regarding totalitarianism and what we can do to recognize it and fight it so that we preserve freedom, because freedom is everything, to me at least. Uh, I don't like being told what to do. Most people don't like being told what to do. Most people like the ability to choose for themselves their own direction. And we explore some of that and some of the historical trends and nuances and also some of the ways that totalitarianism appears in modern society when we're not paying attention and when we just get a little bit too complacent with uh, how things are going in life. So I, I think you're really going to enjoy this. She's brilliant, and I, I love reading her writings. They, I mean, she's quite the wordsmith, and she's very well-read and knowledgeable on many subjects. So uh, we're going to get into that. But first, if you are interested or you know somebody who's interested in a free and anonymous mental health screening, please check out WTTA.org. That's walkthetalkamerica.org. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization I'm a part of that's trying to bridge the gap between firearms ownership and mental health care to get gun owners access to counseling without fear of rights restriction. We do a lot more than that. We do trainings and we have a podcast called Guns and Mental Health. So if you're into firearms or you're not into firearms and you're just curious about them, it's a great place to start. And if you just want a free and anonymous mental health screening, that's a great way to figure it out too. Uh, see how your, your brain is ticking and how your mind is operating. And if the number you get isn't something you like, uh, we can uh, work on figuring out how to get you some help. So check out WTTA.org. Also check out ZephyrWellness.org. That's the company that I own and operate here in Northern Nevada, doing outpatient counseling and talk therapy. We offer a YouTube channel. I mean, it's got one guy on it. It's me, but Zephyr Wellness has a YouTube channel. <laughs> and you can see some of the content that I'm trying to push out into the community to help people improve themselves and stop coming through the door of my clinic because I want to work myself out of a job. So check out ZephyrWellness.org for more information on that. And without further delay, here is my interview with my friend, Juana Trian. Welcome back, listening audience to Noggin Notes. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate everything that you do uh, in your way that you do it because uh, if you're listening to us, chances are really strong that somehow these conversations have influenced you. So again, I'm humbled that you're taking time every day to listen to us. Today I have with me Juana Trian. Hello, Juana. How are you? Hello there. It's not spelled in the traditional Hispanic way that Juana may sound to your ears. It's O-O-N-A. O-O-A. A-N-A. Sorry. It's all good. Lipped over a vowel there. As my mother would say, it's not Juana or Juana. It's Juana. Juana. Yeah. It's it's uh, Una is a derivation of my name. My name is a very old Romanian name, and um, it's technically Dacian, which was the uh, what they called that region of Romania prior to Rome. Wow, interesting. Uh, so I just learned something. I, uh, we've chatted several times about several things, 
over the last several years that we've known each other. We met through Twitter, which is really cool. And as much as I bag on Twitter for being a toxic hellscape that you don't want your children diving into, there is some edification that comes from being on the platform, and it, it includes meeting people like you. And I'm very thankful for that. But you mentioned Romania. Your your parents, I believe. My mother. Your, My your father's mom. an American. Okay. Your mom did did what she she escaped some sort of totalitarianism that's what we're talking about today yeah. but you also had some grandparents who were involved somewhere along yes. the way someone died in a gulag and we're going to talk about that uh, but that's that's interesting enough to tease up the show in the first two minutes that we've sure. been talking want me to give a quick summary of that please do yeah yeah Okay, uh, so my father is an American. Um, my mother and you know, hi mom and dad. Um, my mother. Her they name listen is to these things. I'm sorry. Do they listen to these things? Um, I I've tried. To, I'm, I'm working on getting him into podcasts. If you actually put this on YouTube, for sure. Um, I'm working on the uh, other one, but um, uh, you know, I'm an only child, so you know, my parents try to. They like to see everything I'm involved in. Good, you know? good. And also, I'm Jewish, which means they really like to see everything I'm involved in. Um, <laughs> eat, eat, you're wasting away. European, and my mother's European, which means they really like to see everything I'm involved in. Um, and I take that. Um, I'm very fortunate for that. You know, um, I know you're a dad, and when my dad is interested in what I'm doing, it's actually really awesome. And um, I've been very influenced by my parents, both of them. Um, so my father is Jay and made in America, born in Jersey, just like me. Um, my mother was born in Transylvania in a place called Koloshvar or Cluj, which at the time was part of Hungary. Her father um, was a van and a hussar, which means sort of a protector of, of the empire. That's like, that's like a Jews. noble person, right? Yes. Like that's exactly. a part of nobility. Yes. He was a baron is what specifically his title was. And so um, we're Jewish, and a lot of people actually don't even know that there is such a thing. Um, what do you, what do you mean, Jewish like, like no Jewish Hungarians or like Jewish, Jewish Romanians? Oh, Jewish nobility, okay. Yes, yes. Um, there's, you know, um, there certainly are Jewish Hungarians because uh, they, uh, they made sure to get rid of a lot of us. Um, <laughs> but I'm laughing in a dark way. I hope you realize. Or, um, <laughs> these days, you can't it's, see my face. It's hard. It's hard. Oh. It's hard not to laugh in a dark way in a lot of ways these days. But yeah, that's very true. And um, so my mother again. So she was born in Hungary um, in 1944. They fled Hungary to Romania because in Romania, you could actually, you know, King Michael was was opposed to the Nazi regime, even though there are some later, um, these things got very complicated, you understand? So it wasn't actually specifically Hitler they were fleeing, but actually um, a group called the Green Shirts, who were known as the Arrow Cross. And they gained power in Hungary because up until 1944, the Hungarians had protected their Jews. And there was a very large Jewish community. In fact, there still is the largest uh, synagogue in all of, I believe it's all of Europe. It might be all of Eastern Europe, but I'm pretty sure it's all of Europe is actually still in Hungary. And um, when the Arrow Cross took over, known as the Green Shirts, they very quickly um, rounded up everyone. I mean, I think it was in a matter of a few weeks and then in a few months that, you know, 
something like somewhere between, you know, in a certain number, it's like whether it was 300 or 600,000 or dead, it's, it's kind of hard to quantify. So they fled and they went to Romania. And then after um, the war was over, they were about to go into a boat and go to Israel, which was at the time on the map was called Palestine. Um, that is not a statement on uh, anything political today. This is just geography and history. It was pretty gruesome. There's actually an amazing um, podcast by Martyr Maid that I would highly recommend to your listeners called The Anti-Humans. The last 45 minutes is actually all about what happened to Romania and really what the horrors of Stalin really entailed. Um, he does a, like, that's speaking of which, that's my mother who knows that I'm actually doing a recording. So I'm going to remind her <laughs> of this and she can override my do not disturb. So this is a little bit tricky here. No, no so one, no one of, even could tell, uh, except um, you, you broke character when you were telling the story. It's very funny. I did um, listen to that martyr made podcast, by the way, it is, it's hard. It's a hard listen. It's very hard. Um, and it's, uh, I think my mother's ears was ringing, you know, or were ringing. She tends to do that. That it's a happens. Little weird. I mean, it's a Transylvanian thing, I think. Yeah. Or maybe it's just a mom thing. If you're not, maybe both. if you're not watching the YouTube version and you're just listening, Juana just winked when she said it's a Transylvania thing or it's a mom thing. So, so, um, so yeah, so yeah, that Martyr May podcast is pretty. Uh, pretty intense um i think he does a really great job in the very beginning he starts with a joke which is a very um it's a very how do i put this it's a very common thing among survivors of communism to tell jokes i think it's because it's through humor that you see truth and also the humor is like giving you know two really big middle fingers to the system mm -hmm. yeah and I, there's so much I want to talk about and, I, and so little time to do it. For the listening audience, if you don't know who Juana is, you can follow her on Twitter and she's constantly posting about this stuff and constantly referencing articles and stories and blog posts and literature, like deep, good literature. Uh, you're an artist by trade. We didn't finish that introduction. You're, oh, sure. uh, you, I mean, you're, you're a theater director by by, by trade really. Um, right. but part of what we're going to talk about here, and I, I don't want to spend too much time getting into the, the details of, of your family, not because of don't care, but because I'm more interested in the thematic elements of what are emerging yes. in today's culture. Right. So 100%. even though it was horrific that your family went through what it went through and you're now on the other side surviving this thing, we can dig into that some well, it's better time, than the alternative, right? I could not be it, here. You, you and, could, right? Yeah. You know, and the irony is, is if my grandfather had survived, I probably wouldn't be here. So right. There's a weird little reality to that. But, you know, at OOANA, yes, you can. I, I talk about this stuff a lot and I try to. That's your Twitter handle, by the way, at OOANA. Yeah, basically, you can find me anywhere that way. I don't hide. Yeah, nor nor should you. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so I, I have going back to the uh, the green shirts. I have two questions. Sure. I I don't think we hear about the green shirts. We hear about the brown shirts, and that's common. We don't hear about the green shirts. I'm wondering why. And the second question that I have is, were your people armed? Because the reason I ask that is because I'm big into the firearms community now. I yes. didn't used to be, but 
the more I'm learning and the more I hang out with people like Yehuda Reamer, who is the Pew Pew Jew, the more I realize that I'd love to meet armed, the Pew Pew Jew. You, you will. I'll, I'll hook you up with him. Um, armed defense is the ultimate equalizer when tyranny or oppression comes knocking at your door. And that may be in the form of some street thug or it may be in the form of actual like government. But were the people armed? Were they disarmed in the process? Something like that, like we hear the tales of yesteryear. And what's up with the green shirts and why have we never heard about this? Okay, um, I'm going to tackle these one at a time. Um, as I understand it, and, um, you know, when, because the, so the green shirts were aligned specifically with Hitler. And I will presume that everyone was disarmed. I don't know too much detail about that specifically, but there's something I do know about arming, which I would love to touch on in a second, but that actually happened a little bit later in 1956. So let's put a pin on that for a minute. Um, why don't we hear about the green shirts? I think we don't, for similar reasons why we don't really talk about even Stalin, for example. And granted, they were not you know, everyone thinks in this war, it was one side versus the other side. And it was that simple. It wasn't that simple. Um, I once heard someone say that the reasons that we don't know much about what happened in Eastern Europe, and we don't know, and I think it was Martyr Maid who even said this, is that people kind of looked at this stuff as it, it was over there, it was far over there. Now, remember, this was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Right, right. So Hungary was part of the empire, but Hungarians are interesting people. Um, you know, in our national anthem, it even says, or excuse me, in there, I'm, it's funny. I, I, I very much relate. To, Betrayal. You know, it's, it's funny. If people ask me, and, and there are many Jews who would disagree with this, and I, and I did much respect to them, but for me very much, you know, if you ask me what's my ethnicity, I'm, you know, I, my order of operations used to be New Yorker, American, Magyar, which is Hungarian, and my relationship to God is Judaism. That's that's the order of operations. It's my relationship to God has nothing to do with my ethnicity to me. I'm not saying that this is for everyone the way it is, but it's also, I think, a very much a Hungarian phenomenon. I think I was raised this way. Um, my ethnicity feels very much Magyar. My mother, I'm my mother's daughter in this way. Um, I am Hungarian. Um, I'm an American Hungarian. Um, and even if I haven't been back to the country in a very, very long time, it doesn't matter to me because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a deep, the Hungarian people have been, the Mug, we, Magyar is the term that Hungarians use to describe Hungarians. The Magyars, we've been around a very long time. And so it's a, the language is very different. Uh, there are no gender grammar in the language, et cetera. So, you know, the Austrians and the Germans, and the, this is all Western Europe, right? What happened in Eastern Europe and Russia, and then later, of course, or simultaneously in China, a lot of people have this position of, well, it only happened over there because these are, this is backward. This is, these are, you know, these are not as, these people are not as, uh, um, uh, educated or they're not western sophisticated or whatever. yeah it, it's a very funny thing when you consider how many um how inaccurate that is but i think a great example could be 
if you think about how Eastern European women are often, and I experienced this with my mother, you know, she speaks nine languages. English was the last language she learned. I actually learned to read in English with her. But she has a very thick accent. And so when I would hear people mocking Melania Trump's accent, it would make me apoplectic because I know I grew up with that mm. mm-hmm. my whole life. And there's a demeanor that's actually quite similar. Like, um, might appreciate this, but my mother could move me with her eyes. She wouldn't have to say anything. My, like, okay. my, my mother, as, as you're describing this, is really interesting because like, I was raised Italian. My, my whole mom's side of the family is in Reno where I grew up, and my dad's side is German slash French, but they were on the other side of the state, and we never really hung out with them. I didn't adopt mm-hmm. that culture. And so my mother, the school teacher, would say that uh, she, she and some others among her ilk had a look that could freeze water. Yes. And, I, and I think that, that you're describing the same thing. Yes. <laughs> no and words so, necessary. You know, there's this, like, I remember when people would say, you know, Melania, blink twice if you're, you know, if you need help and being rescued. I, you don't understand Eastern European women at all, if that's the way you talk about them. You just right. don't. Um, and this is not uh, to say a position on, on the man or the woman. It's really just to make a comment on how we tend to see, apparently look at these places. You know, and Melania is from Slovenia. And that's part of the region where my family is from. And so um, I think part of it, why we don't hear about it, you know, if you go to Hungary on the Danube, there's a beautiful, very moving and poignant um, memorial to all the Jews who were shot at the Danube. And they were shot by the green shirts and they collapsed into the Danube and they're just empty shoes lining the Danube. Um, history here, maybe part of it is that history is written by the victors. Mm -hmm. Maybe part of it is because, you know, the Hungarian people have a part of what I almost said, my national anthem, but really mine is the American, but their national anthem includes the phrase, we will never be slaves again, Mm -hmm. because they were conquered by the Ottomans and they didn't lose their language. They didn't lose their religion. They didn't lose their, um, the real diversity of their people at the time. Um, and uh, they remained um, Christians and Jews and they didn't convert like Albania did. Interesting. Um, and yet, let me add to this, because of this, I think it was part of why it was so easy in 1944 to kill so many Jewish Hungarians because it's like right now, you know, what I went through in New York, I'm a New Yorker. This won't happen to me. I won't have to leave. And I was absolutely wrong. Yeah. Or I'm an American. Well, now half the time I'm like, it's actually very funny to be Jewish from New York living in Florida, right? Once upon a time, I'd be like, I must be 60. No, now <laughs> it's like, I'm actually half the time. Some people say I'm not white. <laughs> okay, fine. Half the time people say I didn't even come from an American, you know, part of America. Well, wait, what? Other half time, I'm not in America. Wait, what? And this is actually very disturbing to me because it has some familiar echoes historically. Mm. And if we don't remember these things. Now, the issue about being armed. Um, for one thing, I'll say that I believe you're correct. But there's a caveat. We have to remember that in the banality of evil, the people who 
turned on the people and suddenly became their enemy, presented themselves as their friend. They were very friendly, promised to protect them, whether that was, you know, you, you know, we need to make sure, you know, protect you from typhus. So let's put you all in the ghetto and make sure you don't get typhus or protect the other people from typhus. And so, you know, nobody remembers that this was a huge part of the whole story. Or it's 1944. Why would we have to worry in 1944 after all these years that suddenly my neighbor's going to turn on me and when I'm being asked to, you know, gather 20 kilos of things and be out within 20 minutes because the green shirts have suddenly taken over. Why would my neighbor who I just had lunch with the day before possibly hurt me? But they did. They stood out there and said, it's about time. Get them out. It's very, it happens so quickly. In fact, there's this quite, if you bear with me, there's this um, quote from Hannah Ardent about how totalitarianism operates. And it's, she talks about how quickly this happens. And well, to start with, it's, Oh, there's so Hannah Arden has a bunch here actually. There's there's two, I think, and I can bring this up again. But understand these things happen so quickly. It's like um, you know, one the night descends very, very fast, right? And it's also not something that happens in the way that we see in movies, right? The villain isn't twirling his mustache, right? Mm-hmm. So Hannah Ardent wrote in The Origins of Totalitarianism in 1951, one of the great, greatest advantages of the totalitarian elites of the 20s and 30s was to turn any statement of fact into a question of motive. Mm-hmm. And the other thing she said was the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, i.e. the reality of experience, and the distinction between true and false, i.e. the standards of thought no longer exist. So while I'm not saying that being armed wouldn't help, it's not enough. I'm not saying get rid of it, not even by a long shot. But if you think that you can lean back on that and that will be enough, I think history has proven it's almost irrelevant at a certain point because at a certain point, even those who are armed. I mean, let's look at the last three years. What happened? How many people that were armed? You know, there's all these theories, but I mean, I remember what happened in Omaha. That man who was armed defended his property, defended his father, absolute self-defense, and then he was taken. He, He fled, not because he was running from everything. He was a veteran. He was then told he was going to be put in a grand jury, which was completely asinine since the DA didn't plan to actually charge him with anything and then on his way back he killed himself yeah nobody wants to be the tip of the spear well i don't even know if it's the tip of the spear so much as i mean having been there in new york i mean it, it takes a tremendous amount when you realize i mean this is one of the saddest things i'm recognizing why people aren't even doing anything when people who get hurt is that the state even if you're armed, 
has such a machine behind it that if you don't want, you know, even if you know he's a veteran, he didn't want to put his family. What right. he said is he didn't want to put his family through something. And so, you know, the weapons are important, but so I think are the support systems. And I don't even mean this in institutions. I mean, the way we look at these things, the way we look at men who behave heroically and who stands by them armed or unarmed. Right. And how they'll know. Yeah. It's a, it's about volume and it's about, uh, not only capacity, but, um, will. Right. And, and this is where you work in your realm with regard to the arts and why it was so offensive that the arts were shut down during, during the lockdowns and by artists, by artists, right. Who, who just willfully fell into line with the authoritarians. And I want you to talk some more about that because eventually we'll get into, uh, sure. to Vaclav, but, um, can I just jump back? Go to ahead. Yeah. Six for you. So yeah. I don't want to forget about this. I think you'll find this fascinating. Please do. Cause it's about armed being armed. So in 1956, Hungary had a revolution. Um, the reason was, or what really the revolution was all about, is they basically took over the radio stations. Freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And the Russians, or Stalin's, you know, Stalin's, or the Soviets, I think Stalin had just died, actually, um, if I'm remembering my dates correctly. But Stalin, or sorry, the Soviets basically did what they always did, which is they rolled into town with huge tanks, and one of their favorite things to do was to roll over children. Splat. In most places, what this meant is that the people would kowtow and just bend. Now, if you Googled 1956 Hungarian Revolution and the word woman, so many images would pop up of women standing there, armed, conf- and, and they confronted the Soviets. And they said, no. They didn't just bend. There's uh, stories about Czechoslovakians who did the same thing. So it's the images you'll see today. A lot of times people say that this was a workers' revolution. That is utter hogwash. It's not true at all. What had, what this was about was don't touch my children. And it's a there's a Magyar temperament about this. There's a word in Hungarian. It's edoshonyam, and it. It's untranslatable, but what it kind of translates to is my darling, precious mother. But remember, this is not a gendered language. There is no gendered grammar in this language, um, except for in referring to animals. So there's he wolf and she wolf, but not for human beings whatsoever. So the idea of a doshanyam is beyond gender, but it is, of course, about a mother, which is a woman. Does this make sense? Yeah, like a, like a caretaker, but in the object relations sense, uh, you get the the nurturing parent and the critical parent. Uh, uh, Eric Byrne talks about that, but yeah, like traditionally, the nurturing is the mother and the critical is the father because the crit- you know, the father holds it's the boundaries beyond, and whatnot. But but I get what you're even, saying. It's beyond even that. It's 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 um, it was. I mean, men were armed too, but so the it's women, a protector, protector, caretaker uh, archetype is what you're. I think what you're yeah, going yes. for here, kind of like the right. woman, the image of the woman with her foot on the serpent, holding the baby in the air. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, or uh, so, you know, Harriet Tubman, right? Like right, or, woman or, protector. And it, and and granted, there's a distinction between male and female. Very, that's very important. But there's in 
so here's an example. When my mother um, came to this country and she actually immigrated here in um, 1973, she, to make a very long story short, she ended up, uh, this is a whole other story, but she actually came here with Ringling Brothers, but she wasn't a carny. She was, um, this is how she was able to travel. This is, this is a Naga, Naga Notes Goes Circus, but uh, that's a different podcast. Yes. Well, but she also would be the first to tell you that, you know, she, she got her master's in film, um, and she also went to medical school. So she, you know, she did what she had to do, but she was very good at it and it allowed her to travel and come here. I, she left before, you know, before I was born, the circus. Um, but um, she met Bella Obsuk, um during the time when they were trying to change the, you know, to say, you know, all men and women are created equal. And she kept saying to Bella, I do not understand. And Bella tried to explain to her. She goes, I don't understand. And she, and then my mother said, but no, I was born equal. And this is human, not male, female. And so that's what I'm trying to say is that it's the human mother, which is the woman who gives birth to the child mm -hmm. that is Edoshonyam, that, that can only be described as Edoshonyam. Mm -hmm. But that intrinsic kind of value within the, the population, men, I would say, you know, like my grandmother was a lawyer, my great grandmother was a lawyer, and my great great grandmother was a lawyer. I don't know, like in that side, this idea of, you know, glass ceilings. Wait, what are you talking about? Glass ceilings. This is, the, you know, and so when my mother was talking about the same thing, it, it only is something that was really here that I, I now will say it's very much an issue here, but it's different, is what I'm trying to get at. And so these women were armed. These women stood up uh, to these tanks and for a period of time, they certainly won. And then after that, even if they ultimately, what you could call losing the battle, they actually won the war, so to speak, because the Soviets stayed out of Hungary. They were still communists. They were still part of it, but they were like, we ain't messing with them. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think about this quite a bit when I imagine what's going on now, um, especially when I hear people talk about things like a, you know, peaceful divorce which i'm i'm telling you if we do that it's going to be on cnn and it's a mostly peaceful divorce faster than your head could spin yeah <laughs> you know, like i I, I really worry about that uh, but we could talk about that in a we'll minute talk about that, i don't yeah. want to derail the conversation saying, like, right now yeah what it really is is a matter of um you know eugenia Anascu talks about this quite a bit the playwright you play i'm working on need to get out of my mind right now because i was going to ask you about rhinoceros hmm well, he says something that's really interesting. Um, so this play is an absurdist play in which everyone is turning into a rhinoceros. And it's an allegory about what it was like during this, really the, the rise of totalitarianism, whether it's left, right, middle, it, there, it, it, none of it. it. That's all distinctions without a difference, usually designed and created by people who are helping fuel what I call totalitarian creep. So it's really, it is. You're, you're, is, you're is directing. You're directing this play, by the way, and everyone should go see it. If you're if you're in oh, the yes. uh, Greater St. Petersburg area, Tampa ish, uh, you should. June you should 15th, go watch it. 16th, and 17th. June also, 15th, 16th, 17th, 2023. Also, if you're in the area on 13th and 14th, there's an open call for auditions, and you can find all the information um, either on my Twitter or at my company called Radio Orchid. 13th, 14th of June. 
uh, know of, of this month. I d- our casting call. We will see if we publish this by then. But <laughs> this is March. Well, there's by the also way. well, there's also callbacks um, yes. on uh, March. 8th, but, but if this is if this is if, if it's right around the corner, but you're directing but not, you're directing rhinoceros in June fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth. You can also visit Radio Orchid if you want to support the play with uh, either buying tickets, um, which you know um, advance tickets are forty um, early bird. It gets more expensive as you go or, if you make a donation or, or just donate off. or just donate that's right but it tell, tell so, us about tell us about the absurdist play where everybody's turning into rhinoceri well first i'll tell you a little bit about grammatically how i that's cool yeah. no no we don't want to yeah. know about the playwright we just want to yes yeah. of course we want to know about the playwright so one of the things he says that's really remarkable i think and so he didn't write his first play until he was in his 40s he was born in romania and he was educated in um, educated in Paris, and he couldn't go back to Romania because by this point Stalin had taken over basically the entire arts and had been pushing what is called socialist realism. And if you didn't follow that, um, it, it, the, the people think it's an art style, but it's really not. It's actually the core philosophy. Um, solidified under Stalin's days that led to the death of. We 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 need we need to hover there for a second before we go into Ionesco's uh, biography because I want everybody to understand what socialist realism is or uh, what you call it sock realism I think is that how you it's known as both okay Um, so the distinction is always that I don't want people to think I'm talking about social realism which is a is a movement that came out of the United States socialist realism or sock realism is a period an art period that came and was fomented designed created inorganically under Stalin with the help primarily of a man named Gorky. So, so inorganically, you mean the state created this, this vehicle through which artistic expression flowed and it was for a purpose. And that purpose was education, right? Re-education, but also um, the changing of the, of the mind. So, I can, re- if you don't mind, I'll read you a portion of, um, so I'm picking I, up this book in my yeah, hands right now. Yeah, I'd, uh, art under Stalin is what I'm saying there. But uh, before we, before you read that, I, I just really want to lay the groundwork for people who may be like lost in the weeds here. This will help. Um, the idea is that you got a Stalinist government that's trying to control people. And your one of your thematic theories is that Culture is driven by art, and the expression of art takes many forms, film, play, music, comedy. If you can manipulate the art in which people interact, and, you know, we all throw movie quotes around at each other, right? And we all cite song lyrics, kind of tongue-in-cheek, sometimes punchy. If, If a government, if a state can manipulate the art in such a way that they can basically metastasize their message through the expression that is creative and seemingly innocuous. Like, uh, I'm just, you know, going through life and I see, I listen to my music and I see these films and whatnot, but, but it's, it's carrying a, a, a message of indoctrination that aligns with what the government wants you to think. Then you have effectively controlled the people without force. It's a psychological manipulation and this this is what socialist realism is is about. Am I am I tracking with it? Um, you've got it 
in many ways, but I think what you're describing is a little bit more aligned with the idea of propaganda. Soak realism and socialist realism is is it's something slightly different, but you let me say it this way. Um, and this is why I find it so vital. If this let me try to put, phrase it this way. I think that, you know, much respect to um Breitbart. I think he was wrong when he said that politics is their cult, culture is downstream from politics, right? Or politics is downstream from culture. Both of those, I think, was a slight. I've heard it go both ways. I can't. I'm now losing. I can't. I can't remember either. I know what you're referring to, though. I, I don't remember I think which it was is culture which. Culture is downstream of politics. I but you can make an argument for either. But you're not yes, talking you about that. Um, I am, though. I will make a new argument. My argument is that culture culture is the stream. Politics are the embankment. I would staunchly agree with that on first blush. Yeah. Okay. So with that in mind, when I say culture, when I say art, I don't mean painting exclusively. I don't mean things you go and get your bachelor's of fine arts. And at. any artistic expression. I'd even say there is an art to being a therapist. There is an art to medicine. Yeah. Yeah. There is an art to statesmanhood. There is an art to um, the art of, right? Yeah, not not to jump the PowerPoint presentation too much if we had one, but is this analogous to what we're seeing with like DEI and wokeism and yes. okay? In fact, I just did a. a it's everywhere, a, right? It's every. It's I'm, literally I just, everywhere. I just did a podcast or rather a, a show with uh, Deb Philman. And I make the argument that SEL is socialist realism. She's awesome, by the way. She, I'm going to have her on Naga Notes soon. I just appeared on her show. Um, right. But that that's, yes. Uh, so I think SEL. I, my appearance, I think, is like two or just right after yours. Um, oh, cool. Nice. And, you know, my point is that we have to think about, you know, once you've got it wasn't always that science and arts were separated. They weren't. Neither was science and philosophy. Right. There was art, science, and philosophy. Well, until it hit the academy. Excuse me? Until it hit the academy. Even prior to that, like, or after that, the academy came with this. Like, the best of the academy understood you had a college of arts and sciences. You're you're right. A a liberal arts, a true classical liberal education meant that you understood these things. When you look at, you know, Michelangelo, um, uh, most are, Ben Franklin, Jefferson, the Renaissance men, what made somebody well-rounded, you know, people who understood languages, people who had the luxury of learning, right? If they were, you know, of a certain, there's this, there's this horrible sort of misconception, I think now, that anybody who is wealthy is just a leech, right? Or just sitting there, you know, happy and doing it there there was a belief that if you had the and i say privilege when it really meant something like it is a privilege to be sitting with you here jake this is yeah. a privilege yeah. to do this it, uh, and uh it, when when it meant honor and we respect the ability to do yes. the thing not some ungrant uh sorry some granted but unearned privilege which somehow right. translates to which power over another on, right usually based on immutable characteristics which yeah. is a bastardization of what it really the word means, yeah absolutely which is, absolutely which is it's as disgusting. James Lindsay's great at he says all the time you know they have the same vocabulary we have 
the words just have different meanings. Right. This is one of them. Right. So for example, my mother, because she was the daughter of a nobleman who was now in the gulag and then in Pitesh prison, she had what was called a social note on her. They were checking her privilege, which meant that she and her brother would have been taken out of school in sixth grade. It meant that if she didn't get an A, she would be graded downwards. She had to get an, a 100 to get 100. If she got a 90, it would be a C. They were intentionally trying to remove, not just remove him. It's not, you're not just getting rid of you. This is how this idea of, it's when you think about wealth distribution, define wealth. It's not just a wealth in terms of monetary Correct. money. It's a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of experience. And well, and it's and it's also a wealth the, of connectivity too. So who who are you right. networked with? And um, right. not to be all Jordan Peterson, but who is the they that was trying to separate? Do you think when when you know if you're not getting a hundred, you're getting a ninety? I know but it's who it was Stalinist. Like, so so we can point to the they, but in in this culture in this time, we say they right they they the liberals they the I would leftists say, no, whatever. I would say again, like, still they Stalinists, and Stalinists. They I, don't, I don't. They don't. don't identify as such, though. So how do we? How do we? Why would they? Does they won't. They won't identify as a pedophile. No, no, no. They're minor, minor attracted persons, right? No, so but I mean, literally, shift the language. Like, is a murderer going to come up to you and say, "Hey, like, oh, like, remember in um, the great show? Uh, uh, what was it called? They were all from Canada. Um, uh, Kids in the Hall. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm an ex murderer. Chop, chop. You know, they don't do that. No, right. so so that's why language is important. That's why definitional values matter. And, and if we start to mm -hmm. invert or corrupt or bastardize or erode definitional structure, Including then the words word right words can mean whatever the utterer of the word wants it to mean. And if we attach, uh, well, they you know, want to try to do that. Well, it doesn't actually. Sure, and this is where but, you and I talked the other day about postmodernist philosophy versus postmodernist art. Art. And postmodernist philosophy is something very insidious that wants to erode and deconstruct everything for the purpose of deconstruction with no construction in its place after we've taken down, right? And I say that's down, socialist right? realism too. Correct. So I'm glad we circled to this so, because I want you to explain but, that. Could sure. you explain so, it better than I do? First of all, socialist realism is neither social nor is it real. <laughs> yeah, correct. Okay? So let me just give you a little definition of it. I'm going to read to you something from, um, first I'm going to read to you something that was published in the 1950s. And this was published in New York. Um, it was published um, by a New York publishing house and there's an introduction by a Hungarian. And that's what I'm going to share with you. Keep um, in mind everyone while she takes a drink of water that this is mm -hmm. a theater director. By the way, I wish we could like promo this. This is actually great water because I'm in Florida. I miss New York water. Oh, uh, anyway. water in Reno is great. But keep in mind that Juana is a, a theater director. She's an artist at her core, but she's also an intellectual. I mean, if there was a term of Renaissance woman, which there should be, this would be Juana. And so she's very curiously endeavoring into all these different uh, lanes. Why? So we can stand on personal autonomy and liberty and not in the libertarian right. sense, not in the political sense, but like personal, I know who I am and I want to advocate for my own life sense. And You're born free. Yeah, you, you really are. Uh, and, and you only experience restrictions that you hand over to other people, whether we hand it over through the ballot box or through, you know, purposeful uh, entry into a relationship where we go, I trust you with my emotions and I believe that you're not going to run afoul of that, right? Like, 
the idea is that we need to be aware and not a not asleep. We need to be awakened, not woke, to the idea that there are forces out there who are nefarious in their intent and do want to control the populace, if not you know individual people. Or even you know to to, to talk about it from sort of in the perspective of the the Bolshevik perspective, which um, you know. For me, socialism is socialism is socialism. Um, there's different gradients of people mm -hmm. who are aware or not aware of what the philosophies, and rather, I should say, theology, because it is a theology. It, it really is. And um, we can call it leftism, if we'd like. But I think the labels don't really matter. But when we're talking about socialist realism, I'm going to share. So this Hungarian writes this introduction, and it's a... It's, an, it's a satirical essay by a Russian anonymous writer that he's writing this introduction for. And so he has he's telling the people the same question you're asking me, which is, what the heck is socialist realism? So he says, and this is from Abram Turtz on socialist realism. He says, some Americans may believe that socialist realism or soak realism, as it is called, is nothing more than a style applied in the literature and art of the Soviet Union and in those areas in, to which its influence extends, a style which bears witness to the 19th century taste of bureaucrats for wedding cake architecture, for flat colors in painting, and for plush luxury. That anyone who opposes this system of aesthetics as committing a political offense might appear fantastic. But unfortunately, soak realism is not merely a question of taste. It is a philosophy too, and the cornerstone of official doctrine worked out in Stalin's days. Soak realism is directly responsible for the deaths of millions of men and women, for it is based on the glorification of the state by the writer and artist, whose task it is to portray the power of the state as the greatest good and to scorn the sufferings of the individual. It is thus an effective anesthetic. The inferiority of poetry, novels, plays, and pictures produced in accordance with this formula cannot be avoided, since reality, which is quite disagreeable, has to be passed over in silence in the name of an ideal in the name of what ought to be. However, such an inferiority does not prevent, but indeed facilitates the extension of the influence of this kind of mass culture. The battle against Soak realism is therefore a battle in defense of truth and consequently in defense of man himself. That's really remarkable um, yes. because it, it actually, I, I've long wondered why the difference between left and right on the political continuum seemed to tilt toward liberty on one side and restriction on the other. But what you just read there makes complete sense that the people who are left inclined, we'll say, are ones who would hand over their power to the external, trusting fully that their lives would be better off if somebody else made the decisions and the people on the right, quote unquote, would believe that they're better off making their own decisions and limiting the ability of the government in this case to influence their lives. And I, and I think it comes down to a matter of faith. Where do you put your faith in yourself or someone else? Well, I think you're onto something, but I would take very cautious I'd be very cautious about distinguishing it as left-right. It's and not. I, I, I know I it's know, not. It's more of a wheel and a continuum. I'm the daughter yeah. of two generations of Republicans on my father's side, American Jews. So trust me, I get what you're saying. However, 
when I in that explanation, he just says soak realism is dangerous. He doesn't define it. Right. He doesn't do that in this other little bit, which for the people who are listening. So what the heck is it? He the reason it's not defined there is it took a very long time for people to actually nail down the, the distinctive qualities that the movement in the arts had. And why it began in the arts this is also an important point, because remember, in Russia, there were incredible institutions for the arts. I mean, you have Dostoevsky, you have Pasternak, you have prior to the revolution, there was Meyerhold. The arts was flourishing there in a way that was quite remarkable and unlike anything we'd ever seen. And also in Eastern Europe, the artist is not like, it, it, it's not... So I, I always take oh no, like umbrage when people call people clowns because I said, no, 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 they may be buffoons. They're not clowns. Clowning mm. is, is vital. It, it's the truth teller, right? Mm -hmm. But this the, is it goes way gesture. back into the culture. And this, these are people who have a long history of, um, and uh, you know, it's part of who they are, uh, you know, who each of them are to understand this stuff. So if you would allow me the, for a moment because when you combine both of these two concepts i think it becomes so clear why i'm saying i i take caution with left right because there's one other thing that's neither left nor right that is the problem and it can emerge either side like like woke is is not a left right phenomenon it may begin on one side but it doesn't have a political home let it's, me and I'll explain to you what i mean by that yeah i, I want seconds. you to do that i want to i want to float my definition of woke as i see it Woke is postmodernism put into policy. So postmodernism, postmodern theory, this. Uh, in yes. the in the in the philosophical psychological sense, is the idea that nothing is real. We can never know truth. Everything's a construct of a construct. It's all subjective, um, and so that's fine as a thought exercise if you're trying to get somebody out of binary thinking and move them into some disequilibrium into the gray, right? From the black yes. or the white, right? That's that's great. But you can't live there because if you live there, then you run into the sea with no anchoring, no mooring, no bearings, and then you're subject to whatever the, the storms blow and the waves toss you, and you're adrift among the sea with no direction, no ordinance uh, at all, right? No it's ordination, even worse right? Than that. So then... Woke takes that concept of being unmoored and puts it into policy binding across millions or hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people. So, so that's what I, I, I see woke I, as. When I hear the word woke, I think that it is socialist realism. That's yeah, what it is. Yeah, I want to I so hear me, this. Let me, let me get into this, Pierre, because I think your head might explode. Um, I think you might really... I hope the camera captures that, honestly. Well, maybe maybe you should I take off your... my hat to... <laughs> so it can really Where, whoa, okay. Let's you know, let's can, do this. Work on that let's go down bit. this path. Do little Disney cartoons here, or, <laughs> or or Looney Tunes, much better. Hanna Barbera, much better. Yeah, exactly. So, in this book called Art Under Stalin by um, Col Col uh, Matthew Kohler and Bound. Now, this came out in the '90s. This came out after the KGB released a bunch of files about what had happened to the Soviets. So they were able to give a much clearer historical, but also um, aesthetic um, explanation. So, you know, in that original text that I read to you, the um, 
the original author, you know, uh, Cislo Milos, who's, who's describing Abram Church's work, says that, that this is in the 50s. He said, the problem with socialist realism is that it is much less simple than it might appear at first sight. Despite many attempts, the elements which constitute its theory have never been combined into a harmonious whole. Then, now it has been. So here's right. what it is, okay? Over there, he does talk about heroes and heroines and all that stuff, but let me just break this down for you. So this is about, you can see, it's about halfway through the book, okay? So it goes through really looking at this from an art history perspective, but then it starts explaining what it, how it emerged. And so in the 1930s, a Soviet art was to be urged down a single, increasingly narrow path guided by a new beacon, socialist realism. Now, prior to that, the art movements were, everything was all different. Now, if you start thinking about what's happened in, in arts, education, everything seems to be going down a narrow path. We can call that woke, right? But listen to what this was and what, in my opinion, it still is. He says, we can talk about it, but first section says, you know, what's in a name? I can go back to this later, but I want you to hear what it is is and we can talk about its founding if you want but um the in the definition right that he first discusses which is just how they came up with the name in a in a writer's you know the writers meetings like which is like the union of writers which basically if you weren't in keeping with the um red army perspective if you were white yeah, army, the, yeah there's were, there's always there's always a committee that um tells everyone else what to do right it's the peer review well, <laughs> well, well, it's even deeper, darker than that. Like um, James Lindsay talks about this. Like you know, when they mean the pe when they say the people, or they say all, they don't mean all the people. They don't mean all. Not at all. They they don't. Not at all. Right. Socialist realism theory. The theory of socialist realism. So first, he says socialist realism did not emerge fully armed like some Minerva. Okay. The theory of socialist realism, elaborate during the 1930s, sought intellectual roots. This search led to the publication of a number of books in the second half of the decade, Marx and Engels on Art in 1937, Lenin on Culture and Art in 1938, and Gorky on Art in 1940. A precedent for socialist realism was discovered in Engels' requirement for a tendentious art devoted to the workers' cause. Forebearers were discovered in the optimistic fiction of Maxim Gorky. His novel Mother in 1906 was deemed a particular exemplum. Gorky himself had quite a lot to say about socialist realism. He stated that the hero of socialist realism would be toil, with a capital T, and that the toiler would be unthinkable outside the collective. Individualism he called bankrupt, decrepit, and mercilessly zoological. Like Zadunov, he required artists to look at the present day from the point of view of an assured glorious future, from the height of the great goals of the future. Most famously, he asserted that the artist should be both midwife and gravedigger, that you should bury everything harmful to people, harmful even when they like it. In other words, the artist was called upon not only to create a new art, but to exterminate the pernicious elements of the old. Above all, the party assistants turned to Lenin's published thoughts and writings, and there they found the perfect embryo of the new art of the Stalin era. The qualities Lenin desired in art, its nardenost, or orientation toward the people, its eidenost, or ideological content, its klasivost, or class content, were isolated as the essential characteristics of socialist realism. But most important of all was the quality of partinost, party consciousness, which Lenin called for in his article on party organization and party literature in 1905. 
Partinos was strongly implied in the 1934 Writers' Conference definition quoted earlier, i.e. the task of educating the workers in the spirit of communism. Once the principle of Partinos was accepted, the prin other principles followed as night the day. Bernat was the party, the representative of the people's interests, the purveyor of ideology, the leader of the class struggle. Thus, the concepts of Nardinost, Idinost, and Klasovos were subsumed in the idea of Partinost, and they meant, at any particular time, only what the party wanted them to mean. We are flirting with that. More than. With the idea of Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo with their ideologies and then infusing that into corporations it's everywhere professional associations artistic professional associations um schools the only thing missing Remember, the only the thing, thing missing that, is the party well, right it's not it's there it's already there but but and it's not is, it doesn't have a label right yes it, it does what what it is does. it who who is the head like we have a there stall. is no head there is no that's, stall that's, right there's there's a hydra right but it doesn't there never really is this is kind of a mythology mm -hmm. um, but let me let me examine the main sentence there i want you to think about is the hero is toil toil right the toiler is unthinkable outside the collective so the collective has to be the toiler no the toiler is unthinkable outside the collective and the toil is defined by partinos idunos and classivos so therefore if you imagine for a minute a great example currently could be the dancing nurses okay the hero is toil they're toil they're the hero the toil now i get it and the toiler is unthinkable outside the collective the collective as defined as who the people are based upon what's deemed by you lose your individuality is what you're saying the individual is considered zoological right it's considered you don't you are unthinkable it's not a, it's not a thing there is it's, it's, it's unthinkable right it doesn't exist there is no there is no you there's only we right it's unthinkable meaning yeah. to the point where eventually you can say something doesn't exist if you know it exists it's unthinkable so what they're trying to do and i say this and the reason i i, I might shake some people up here i see it woke right woke left it's woke doesn't matter it's woke if somebody defines to me and says to me that they're buying into say the identity politics game and they only see themselves or other people as defined in a reaction to what first happened, say, emerged on the left. Beautiful, beautiful trouble, which is, you know, James Lee talks about this, but the reaction is the action. So if I say to you mm -hmm. that it's predictable, you are, your whiteness is problematic. Now, here's the really funny part. When I hear whiteness, I don't see your skin color. I think white army. Mm. It's the same. It's an ideology. And this is where Vaclav Havel gets into this, this idea of ideology. So the hero is toil and the toiler is unthinkable outside the collective. Who defines that? The ideology defines that. What is the ideology? The ideology is the totalitarian automaton. 
which starts has with has leaders at first, but eventually you become so subsumed by it that that ideology becomes more important than truth. Sure. And we're at this weird point right now, right? So psychologically speaking, if you have a, a just if I came to you as a client and I said, I am a white Jewish woman, therefore I feel constantly threatened, therefore. I am a part of the, you know, whatever. And I keep putting myself into this category. So I am unthinkable outside the collective. Right. And if even if people treat me this way, right, the way I can respond is becomes more complex. This is why it's such a dangerous philosophy. Well, because it brings everyone in. And the reason that the arts itself pushed it out is the same reason they push CRT, they push DEI, the DIE, they push SEL. It is all socrealism. It is all a way of educating the people in the spirit of revolution. Yeah, it's it's and what to think, not how to think. Is constant and never ends. It's it's what to think and not how to think. And I, and and I go back to why I don't know about why, but I noticed that analytic psychology and psychoanalysis are gradually being pushed out of the therapy realm, and I think it's because in psychoanalytic approach you have nothing but the individual the individual is part of a collective but if the idea that the toiler is unthinkable you have no individuality so when i or jordan peterson or christian conti or any other jungian studier comes in and says you are not your labels you are deeper than that you're bigger than that because the divine lives within you that threatens the ideology. The ideology relies upon labels. By the way, they're self-defined. So they can be whatever they want you to be. So they can control you. So the ideology self-defined person, once you have once you have given some sacrifice. Power over, over right. To yeah. the uh, and, and that and that, that sacrifice would be self, capital S self. And truth. Uh, absolutely, because truth lies in the pragmatic, the observable the non-negotiable. But when we start to throw those out the window and we say, well, you know, truth is subjective. Your lived experience. Like, yeah, I can have my lived experience. Of course, nobody can ever actually see what I've seen. Nobody can actually experience what I've experienced. That's why we we want as therapists to skirt the experiential comparison because I'll never know what it's like to be a 13-year-old black female growing up in Chicago. But that in and of itself does not negate my ability to help said 13 year old black girl in Chicago, because I see through the labels into the inner divine of the human being says, Hey, you can do lots of things. You can, you're infinite in your capacity. That's what the divine is. The divine is infinite. It's also truth that you can be anything you want to be irrespective of social structures or, uh, systemic racism or whatever we want to chalk up to the ideologies because it's a hell of a power throw to hand off all that authority to something you can't control and then claim victim like wow that's super limiting well, why would i want exactly to do that why they do it because then they they define you as the hero remember the hero is toil yeah. and the toiler yeah. is unthinkable outside right. the collective therefore your victimhood makes you the hero mm-hmm. defined as the party so Back to the Abram Turrets, he says... And then there's a dependency that comes along with it. I'm sorry, say that again? There's a a dependency that comes along with it. A dependency upon the the authority, right? Not the divine. Not not the divine, the authority. 
Well, and well, remember in this in this theology, um, liberation theology, you know, liberation equals death, and you know the the whatever is. People have a mistaken belief that there is no God in this theology. There actually is. It just isn't aware of itself. Well, and so uh, it's well, very it, Gnostic. So. And, and now you bring that up. I, I just want to put a bow on this like stream of consciousness I'm having. What you're describing there with the idea of the, the ideologues, the ideology being bigger than self, but self at the center of it because you as yourself as part of the ideology get to define whatever it is you're doing because your you live it experience is all that matters. You've become God of your own universe. Right, but as long as party says it's okay. So here's, here's yeah, the that's true. Part. That's true. It says the hero is allowed to have some doubts and make some mistakes, but good must finally triumph. Yet this good does not mean morality based on the Ten Commandments, but simply the individual's conformity with the communal aim. Right. This and this aim Which is, is the victory of subjective. the revolution throughout the world. But since victory can be obtained only through a state led by party. Yeah. The aim is everything which assists the party into increasing the industrial, military, and other strength. So the norms of individual behavior are not to be found within an individual, but are determined from without. The, quote, subjective honesty of a man who, motivated by moral impulses, might condemn the use of tanks in Budapest, this is about 1956, what I mentioned earlier, does not lessen his objective guilt, for the independence of Hungary would be at variance with the interests of the Soviet Union, and hence with the interests of revolution, i.e. of all mankind. That means that what he's saying there is, for example, why could people march during the BLM protests, but not be outside together during COVID restrictions? Right. And they said this was more important. It's because this has become subsumed. So, you know, when we use words like party, right, we have this idea of, you know, we think Republicans, Democrats, this is a phenomenon that emerged very quickly in America, even despite the warnings of Hamilton via George Washington. But you have to understand when I'm saying party, I'm saying ideology. Each party has an ideology. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't all have shared principles as Americans. We do. But they become subsumed in ideology. Hence why I cautionary, like with utmost caution, I say in a very casual way, saying left, right, it's fine. But it's not the answer. The answer is principles beyond the ideology and so anything within the system and yeah, that's where but, the, but the problem, stuff the, comes in the problem is you and, you can't you can't have principles beyond the ideology or the ideology falls apart the ideology has to create its own principles in order to control its I followers mean, right would you agree that as americans we have certain founding principles <laughs> well yes i would um comma but I don't know that most Americans these days even ag agree on that, right? But yes, matter. I do. I mean, um, it's true, though. Sure. Right? Free freedoms uh, is enumerated in the first Ten Commandments. Okay. Uh, so commandments. We'll, we'll take it with that, right? <laughs> the, uh, right? Yeah, the, 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 um, the Bill of Rights, right? Those are, those are protections against government intrusion on personal liberty but as they, given by God. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Correct. Right? So they're true whether or not the government does anything. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah, like I can always fight back, right? I don't have to give my power over. Take my guns, take my knives, take my whatever. It's like I can still use my fists and until you bind me, I and I still, even if I'm bound, even if I'm thrown in a solitary confinement, I still have my mind. You and can't you're still control born free. Correct. I'm still free to be and and uh 
Viktor Frankl talks about this, right? Like how, how does somebody survive a concentration camp versus somebody who doesn't? Well, it's whether or not they've decided in their mind if they're free. So yes, we hold these and truths to be self-evident. That's the self-evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, whether, you know, the number of people who, you know, would recite poems in their mind, you know, I remember Absolutely. Douglas talking about this. So this is, so again, to the arts element of this, a lot of these people who both usher in and also work as dissidents in a defeat happen to be artists. And I'm not just talking about Hitler being a painter. I'm talking about Mao being a poet. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about Vaclav Havel being a playwright. Yeah, let's, let's, playwright. let's talk about Vaclav Havel. Sure. So he was a playwright, um, and he wrote. Um, so, so where to begin with it? He was a Czechoslovakian. He was a uh, and late, well, playwright, and later became the first president of Czechoslovakia after the fall of the Soviet Union. He was also instrumental in that fall. He led the Prague Spring. And he wrote this essay, which I will say over and over to get to people, especially the first 10 parts, in my opinion, is the most important piece of writing about the time we're in, period. A lot of people know Gulag Archipelago. I think this is more important. He and Solzhenitsyn knew each other. They worked together. They refer to each other. So remember when Solzhenitsyn refers to the Czech who stood with his chest out? Hmm. He's talking about Vaclav and the, the spirit of those people. He talks about Solzhenitsyn in this essay as well. Solzhenitsyn was a writer. Um, the thing that I think we have to understand when we're talking about Sok realism, when we're talking about Stalin, when we're talking about Mao, we are not talking about a dictatorship as people think of it. Because these things don't end when one person replaces the next. Correct. These things don't just have this one person on top and it, it, there's a hydra but it's much worse than that. But what it, it, that in a, in a way, none of that is relevant. Though. That's why he calls this essay the power of the powerless, not the power to the powerless, not the power in the powerless. He says the power of the powerless. We all have a power that once you see it, and it's not easy to see, you actually have to get through some stuff. But I think that, you know, if we touch on one little short portion and then read that portion about um, the green grocer. I think that that might enlighten, bring some a lot of thoughts to your listeners, but also have them start to take some time with this essay, I hope, and, and find ways that they can recognize how much, you know, it's not just that the emperor is naked. It's just that half the time people are calling an emperor an emperor who's not. Yeah. And that's funny to me. But also the villain is not just the emperor. And it's not just the, the the seamstresses. It's also the people who kept telling him he was clothed. Mm-hmm. This helps people understand, as Sultanation says, that once you live not by lies, once you, even if you cannot tell, your, tell the truth, and it's not your truth, your experience, experience and truth becoming interchangeable in language is, is absolutely absurd. Yeah. Um... And it's a word game, oftentimes made up by people like Judith Butler, who is a freaking moron. If you ever read her stuff, you'll see why she won Worst Writer Award five years running, literally. I mean, she, the woman's, you know, I don't care if she's listening. Somebody, you know, she knows she's dumb. That's why she does what she does. I mean that. 
I'm that, sorry. I mean, There's no. no way. It's like it's like Wilson writing, you know, on administration. When when you read it, you're like, this man's as dumb as a box of hair. But one of the things that these people have they really good at doing is elevating mediocrity into positions of power and sustaining it. They're really good at it. Go for it. Really good. So I'm going to jump ahead. And so you can find this uh, online very easily. And he, in the beginning of this essay, he's talking about why it's not a dictatorship, what it actually is. And I'm going to jump ahead to... First of all, he says, actually, you know what? Let's start with the green grocer, because this is how he begins it, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that part? Yep, I read it, okay. and you read it to me. So he says, the and I'm going to jump around a bit, because it is a very long essay, so bear with me. Um, so when I'm talking about what the green grocer is saying, ask yourselves, if you don't mind, listeners, the what examples you've seen of green grocers and slogans that they put in their shop windows, metaphorically speaking. I did this thought exercise, by the way, listening audience, and I was, I drew some conclusions and I have some thoughts and I, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of examples that and aren't, say that, you know, aren't literally signs in shops. And the essay, you know, this might just feel like, oh gosh, you know, he's telling us the problem, but he has solutions. Mm -hmm. That's what's so incredible about this. And this is one of the things I encourage people to realize that if you go back and you listen to dissident voices, you listen to survivors of both, you know, of, of Maoism, of National Socialism, of Socialism, of, you know, um, any totalitarian regime. And a totalitarian regime is very, we're, I hate to tell you people, we're in one now. He defines the time they were in as a post-totalitarian system, meaning a time when post-totalitarian creep is not creeping anymore, only it's embedded itself. It surrounds you. And here is what he has to say. Um, take me a pause. I'm going to close my door because my dog opened the door. <laughs> and so I can hear things downstairs, which is fine, but it's a little distracting. So two seconds. One, two, time's up. Four, five. Maxine oh, wanted to be part back. of this. Okay. So, okay. Can you hear me all right? And go. The manager of a fruit and vegetable shop places in his windows, among the onions and carrots, slogan, workers of the world unite. Why does he do it? What is he trying to communicate to the world? Is he genuinely enthusiastic about the idea of unity among the workers of the world? Is his enthusiasm so great that he feels an irrepressible impulse to acquaint the public with his ideals? Has he really given even more than a moment's thought to how much such a unification might occur, how such a unification might occur and what it would mean? I think it can safely be assumed that the overwhelming majority of shopkeepers never think about the slogans they put into their windows, nor do they use them to express their real opinions. That poster was delivered to our greengrocer from the enterprise headquarters along with the onions and carrots. He puts them all in the window simply because it has been done that way for years, because everyone does it, and because that is the way it has to be. If he were to refuse, there could be trouble. He could be reproached for not having the proper decoration in his window. Someone might even accuse him of disloyalty. He does it 
because these things must be done if one is to get along in life. If one is to, it is one of the thousands of details that guarantee him a relatively tranquil life in, quote, harmony with society, as they say. Obviously, the greengrocer is indifferent to the semantic content of the slogan on exhibit. He does not put the slogan in his window from any personal desire to acquaint the public with the ideal it expresses. This, of course, does not mean that his action has no motive or significance at all, or that the slogan communicates nothing to anyone. The slogan is really a sign, and as such, it contains subliminal but very definitive messaging. Verbally, it might be expressed this way. Quote, I, the greengrocer XY, live here, and I know what I must do. I behave in the manner expected of me. I can be dependent upon and I'm beyond reproach. I am obedient and therefore I have the same, I have the right to be left in peace, end quote. This message, of course, has an addressee. It is directed above to the greengrocer's superior. And at the same time, it is a shield that protects the greengrocer from potential informers. The slogan's real meaning, therefore, is rooted firmly in the greengrocer's existence. It affects his vital interests. But what are those vital interests? Let us take note, if the greengrocer had been instructed to display the slogan, I am afraid, and therefore unquestioningly obedient, he would not be nearly as indifferent to its semantics, even though the statement would reflect the truth. The greengrocer would be embarrassed and ashamed that he had put such an unequivocal statement of his own degradation in the shop window, and quite naturally, for he is a human being and thus has a sense of his own dignity. To overcome this complication, his expression of loyalty must take the form of a sign which, at least on its textual surface, indicates a level of disinterested conviction. It must allow the greengrocer to say, what's wrong with workers of the world uniting? Thus, the sign helps the greengrocer to conceal from himself the low foundation of his obedience, at the same time, concealing the low foundations of power. It hides them behind the facade of something high, and that something is ideology. And I'm sure we're going to want to talk about this, but I want to add the, what ideology he says about what he says this is. He says, ideology is a specious way of relating to the world. It offers human beings the illusion of an identity, of dignity, of morality, while making it easier for them to part with them. As the repository of something supra-personal and objective, it enables people to deceive their conscience and conceal their true position and their inglorious modus vivendi both from the world and from themselves. It is a very pragmatic, but at the same time an apparently dignified way of legitimizing what is above, below, and on either side. It is directed toward people and toward God. It is a veil behind which human beings can hide their own fallen existence, their trivialization, and their adaptation to the status quo. It is an excuse that anyone can use from the greengrocer who conceals his fear of losing his job behind an alleged interest in the unification of the workers of the world, to the highest functionary, whose interest in staying in power can be cloaked in phrases about service to the working class. The primary accusatory function of ideology, therefore, is to provide both people both as victims and pillars of the post-totalitarian system, with the illusion that the system is in harmony with the human order and the order of the universe. All right, unpack that. Well, follow the science. <laughs> In this home, we believe, line, 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 multicolored. Um, 
or oh, you know what? She actually got in, and now I just uh, the, getting out. <laughs> the dog is back, and we will pause. I'm gonna just. She was this. so dainty about it, though. She just pawed at the door like a gentle little thing. It was very knocking. cute. She understood. I, well, you know, to unpack this, I think, and I hate that phrase. Really, yeah. there's something else I want to share, and I know that this is a lot, but if you could bear with me, because I think it explains part of what's really important to understand, and that is what the heck is ideology, and what the heck does it mean. It's a right. belief system to which one ascribes that they can't separate themselves from what they think. That's that's how I define ideology. Well, if, if you're yes, but what is it in a post-totalitarian system? Well, I think we have to define post-totalitarian. Are we actually? He he does that in this essay, but I think we are, and he explains why. But this part where he talks about this relationship between the ideology and the system. Yeah, and, and we're starting to creep back into it. We're or, we or men, it for men, a very many long of time. it. You're right. So we're not really post to No, no, what he means by that is after it not the end of it. He means post he means post when he explains it, it's after totalitarianism has embedded itself. Oh, I see. That what you're is saying. a post totalitarian okay. gotcha. society. So so you're okay? living it. You're living in it and you just don't we're know. In it's it. like the, the, the fish in the water, it. right? And so what he says is between the aims of the post-totalitarian system and the aims of life, there is a yawning abyss. While life, in its essence, moves toward polarity, diversity, independent self-constitution and self-organization, in short, toward the fulfillment of its own freedom, the post-totalitarian system stand demands conformity, uniformity, and discipline. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. While life ever strives to create new and improbable structures, the post-totalitarian system contrives to force life into its most probable states. The aims of the system reveal its most essential characteristic to be introversion, a movement toward being ever more completely and unreservedly itself, which means that the radius of its influence is continually widening as well. The system serves the people only to the extent necessary to ensure that people will serve it. Anything beyond this, that is to say anything, which leads people to overstep their predetermined roles is regarded by the system as an attack upon itself. And in this respect, it is correct. Every instance of such transgression is a genuine denial of the system. It can be said, mm -hmm. therefore, that the inner aim of the post-totalitarian system is not mere preservation of power in the hands of a ruling clique, as appears to be the case at first sight. Rather, the social phenomenon of self-preservation is subordinated to something higher, to a kind of blind automatism, which drives the system. No matter what position individuals hold in the hierarchy of power, they are not considered by the system to be worth anything in themselves, but only as things intended to fuel and serve this automatism. For this reason, an individual's desire for power is admissible only insofar as its direction coincides with the direction of the automatism of the system. Ideology, in creating a bridge of excuses between the system and the individual spans the abyss between the aims of the system and the aims of life. It pretends that the requirements of the system derive from the requirements of life. It is a world of appearances, trying to pass for reality. The post-totalitarian system touches everybody, it touches people at every step, but it does so with its ideological gloves on. 
This is why life in the system is so thoroughly permeated with hypocrisy and lies. Government by bureaucracy is called popular government. The working class is enslaved in the name of the working class. The complete degradation of the individual is presented as its ultimate liberation. Depriving people of information is called making it available. The use of power to manipulate is called the public control of power. And the arbitrary abuse of power is called observing the legal code. The repression of culture is called its development. The expansion of imperial influence is presented as support for the oppressed. The lack of free expression becomes the highest form of freedom. Farcical elections become the highest form of democracy. Banning independent thought becomes the most scientific of worldviews. Military occupation becomes fraternal assistance. Because the regime is captive to its own lies, it must falsify everything. It falsifies the world. It falsifies the past. It falsifies the present. And it falsifies the future. It falsifies statistics. It pretends not to possess an omnipotent and unprincipled police apparatus. It pretends to respect human rights. It pretends to persecute no one. It pretends to fear nothing. It pretends to pretend nothing. Individuals need not believe all these mystifications, but they need to behave as though they did. And they must at least tolerate them in silence or get along well with those who they work with. For this reason, however, they must live within a lie. They need not accept the lie. It is enough for them to have accepted their life within it. For by this very fact, individuals confirm the system, fulfill the system, make the system, are the system. And later he talks about what to do about that. But do you see why I say then it's not so simple as when he later talks about somebody walks past that sign and doesn't respond to it, just becomes part of that. The workers of the world unite sign, you mean? I was explaining to somebody recently as I was walking past a bookstore that I would never walk into that bookstore unless I had a very good reason to and I couldn't go anywhere else. Wild guess why that would be. They had one of those multicolored signs. More than that. They had BLM on there. Yeah, they had the fist. They had like I had the whole thing all over all over the place. Do I think that the people who put those signs in are any more aware of what they're saying than the green grocer? And no. my friend said, oh, we, we need to explain to them what this really means. I said, no, it doesn't matter what it means. It's no. irrelevant what it means. The fact is they put it there. And for me to not be part of that post-totalitarian system means that I can't go in there and ignore it and then go home and then put on my office wall, I don't know, um... What's some of the stuff that I'm hearing recently? Um, I hear a lot of, there's a lot of woke right stuff emerging. It's no different. So you'd be living by lies if you were to go in the bookstore, right? You just chalk and it even up just, to. And even pretend I didn't see it. Yeah, just, oh, they, I, did, they didn't they know what they're doing. They're, they're useful idiots in the machine. Well, that's that's problematic enough. Right? Exactly. 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 And that's what he talks about. So, like, once you enter onto that bridge of excuses and you step onto it, you so validate it, you become part of the problem. And, and it, that automaton, you become part of that system. What he would, so, what he encourages people to do is what's called basically parallel poly. You start to, so here's an example. You know, the way that I met you, Jake, right? I, I admired what you were doing. That was not being seen anywhere else. Like I have no idea how we met, by the way. I, I know it was through Twitter, but I, I can't remember our first. Reaction. I was in New York and I was absolutely unable to find anyone to talk to about the, quite bluntly, the trauma that I was experiencing being unpersoned. Yeah. 
And that if anywhere I would go, I'd have to get masked. Anywhere I'd have to go might ask me for my vaccination card. You had a parallel structure in place that I could, you know, I could access and talk to you. And even just that existence of it became enough that I didn't even really need your institution. If that that's makes cool. Sense. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So, you know, and this is, so what you do is exactly what he says to do. You cannot, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, you, you've been doing things outside the system itself. And I think instinctually, as somebody who's a trained in, in psychology and trained in how the human mind really operates, you instinctually did something saying, I'm going to build a parallel system that people are not going to become absolutely you know, they're, they're not going to need to cling to it as, you know, for dear life, but it, it basically allows people to see, oh, this can exist. I don't need to do, people think, you know, one of the things about school choice, and I talked to Deb about this, it really disturbs me, is this idea that to be formidable, if we wanted to, you know, first of all, I, my argument would be get rid of the unions, start mm -hmm. there. But to be formidable, you know, I went to NYU Tisch School of the Arts and I didn't get indoctrinated. How? Right? I, I have no fear. Yeah, I just don't want to waste my money on a crappy education, but I, I fought for my education. When I talk about we have founding principles, those principles have always been the things that led us, and we were very easily moved to get rid of Off them. Off of them. Yep. Or ideology. Yep. yep, you're right. So he's saying here that there is nothing you can really do within the system to stop it because it will imbue itself and it's like an AI. It's like all it does, everything for the totalitarian automaton is to exist constantly. Yeah. It's like the ego. That's what, that's what Jung talks about. The ego, the ego exists to exist and it will fight every possible breath that it has to make sure it continues to exist because the and then self in a good way. That's not bad. Absolutely. Not well, no, it create it creates shortcuts, it creates heuristics, it creates better ways of navigating life, right? It's not and a good or a bad an thing. Awareness that you sure. exist outside the collective. And, and the system needs to do its thing, the the ideology needs to do its thing, the bureaucracy needs to do its thing. That's fine. It it does not necessarily need to be all and I think that's that's, right. that's what ego he's mastery. About. I think mm -hmm. is a much better phrase than ego death when people Absolutely. describe. Oh, I or dis dissolution. Like I'm looking at David. Sorry, whoops. David Hawkins' book, "Dissolving the Ego, Realizing the Self." It's great little snippets of of uh, his writings over time. Um, but you can't. Is there something ever... in there that came to mind that you can share because because no, it's, it's, just it's the a, idea that dissolving it's a fascinating it... thing. I mean, I think that the idea of of like ego death has kind of been subsumed by by this this ideal you know the theory the, the, it's mis <laughs> I, I practiced buddhism for a very long time and i can tell you right now when they are talking about ego and mastery of the ego and ego, it doesn't mean that you suddenly dissolve yourself into the collective no, when you no not at all exist. no what you do is you acknowledge that this thing exists for a purpose and you live in harmony with it you don't try to defeat it right so you need your ego lest you look deep within yourself into the divine, by the way, because we just define capital S self as being of the divine and the divine is infinite. If you looked into that with no guardrails, you'd go crazy. So or you'd start thinking you were God, oh, which is often what happens. Correct. So, and so, and that's one of the Gnostic problems that led to the leftist phenomenon right. of that theology. They, they center themselves is, as gods of their own world. 
un, infallible, unapproachable, uh, beyond reproach, uh, and and yet, no, subordinate dying. to nothing. Yeah, that's, that's the worst part. I mean, it's a, it's a death cult. It really is a death cult. It, it really is because because well because it doesn't give life. <laughs> well, life, worse than that, liberation does quite literally equal death. The only thing we can do equitably you, is die. Death, I don't, death you know, itself. Literally. Right? Yeah, because you have to hand over power to that which is greater than you, which is a death, right? Well, but, no, but I mean, I, I'm talking about literally. I don't mean this figuratively. Oh, you, you mean, I say literally, yeah, 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 no, yeah because they kill each other because they there is nobody who will, it's it's the, the purity tests you know, I mean, and the no, no true Scotsman form. He says it himself. I mean, the, the, mm -hmm. when you say, when I say liberation equals death, I don't mean it is a metaphor. Yeah, if you're free from the system, you will shoot you. No, yeah. no, no, no. The, the, the theology believes that in order for you, the parts of your, for you to reemerge in this Gnostic way with this unaware thing that is a terrible God, but to make it aware, you have to die. Mm -hmm. Destruction. Mm -hmm. It is It is truly, when I say, I, I, this is what, you know, look, this is like the priest class of these of this ideology, but you know the theology itself i mean james lindsay talks about this if you talk to anybody who survived the system they'll explain this to you this is why you know when stalin lost so many people he had no problem tossing people because you know hey guys want to get liberated you're if you are if you understand liberation theology first you have to understand that you're enslaved which means they have to enslave you first so you're no longer born free right then they tell you now that we've enslaved you know see that's that, it's almost like um not to uh, not it's almost like when you enter into like the you know scientology bridge and they think you've, yep. you know, you've got all the way to the top and you think that you know okay what well, now i'm an ot8 and i'm gonna be able to do all these things nope 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 there's now you know eighty thousand you know uh, whatever they're called um whatever they're called you know stuck to your body and you have to deal and deal and do all the uh um auditing for that it's the the rub is you will never be free Right. You are never liberated. Which liberty and liberation are not the same word. Correct. Liberty is the action and the room. So if if, if culture is the stream and politics are the embankment, freedom is the stream. Liberty is the embankment or less embankment mm -hmm. or the curves, the things that allow you to express your natural state. These theology destroy that. And becomes and your ego becomes subsumed in this collective ideology, so you no longer exist. Right, you're part of the collective. You don't have an identity. Hey, Borg. What's What's interesting about Havel's writing is that two things occurred to me. One, uh, there's an interesting juxtaposition because he became a head of state, and what his writing really communicates in modern times. If anyone else were to listen to that, and I'm sure there's people listening who heard your recitation of that that said. That's crazy talk. And I truly mean literally actually crazy because it sounds like schizophrenic writing. It really does. Like I've heard people write like that, teenagers even, when I was in adolescent psych, in inpatient hospital, they write so brilliantly about things that we mock, truths that I only see, and if only the world could know what I know. And right, like we we mock these things and we chalk them up to um, disconnect from reality and alternate viewpoints and all this stuff. And, and we say, well, you're clearly psychotic. You've, you're suffering a psychotic disorder because you're writing about how the system is oppressing you and the man is, you know, you can't ever get out of it unless you die to yourself. And it's like... No, but he's not... But, so you're talking about Marx. You're not talking about Vaclav Havel being psychotic. Uh, right. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, so you said yeah, Vaclav Havel. Writing, so you're like, writing... Hey, he's not sorry, psychotic. Sorry, you're writing... Sorry. 
Yeah. Okay. No, but but when you when you read that so stuff, Marx Marx sounds like a schizophrenic when you read Marx. Yeah, yes, he does. And and but yet people hear that and they're like, yeah, man, that's true. All I have to do is like abandon all my possessions and and go into utopia, right? It's like, yeah, that sort of penetrates and resonates with a with a level of brilliance that is attractive when you're unanchored. When you're so let me, let me when ask you're clinging for something my to recitation. find. So do you think that because he's describing something that is psychotic, mm-hmm. in order to explain it, is that why it sounds like psychosis? Because it is psychosis, but he's not he himself is trying to describe the psychosis. Correct. Does correct. That make correct. Sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Correct. So you you listen along and you're like, yeah, okay. So it's like listening to um, I don't know. Ted Kaczynski or uh, Alex Jones, and I'm not saying they're psychotic people. They may be, but there's also a level of brilliance with. In Mark, talking about in Marx. Yeah, because I've actually never read Marx out loud, and I have no plan to. No, what you were just reading there was was Havel, right? Yes, that but, was yeah. Havel. That's what I'm saying. When it sounds like he's departed from reality when he's describing the structures of institutions. He's not. But it is reality. He's I not, know. Exactly. That's my point. But yes. nobody it, talks like that anymore because well, we've so yeah. subsumed ourselves inside the Borg. We can't. We can't okay. call. We can't call the emperor naked. Okay, I chaired my licensing. Well, you also board, can't right? even mention that the emperor is not the emperor. No, I I chaired my licensing board in the state of Nevada. I rewrote a bunch of regulations. We got a law passed that restored. License parity to professional counselors so they could treat couples and families. When I was in there proposing these things to certain people, it sounded like crazy talk that professional counselors should treat couples and families because in Nevada, which was the only state in the union in 2019 left that didn't allow its professional counselors to treat couples and families, the marriage and family therapists thought that I had lost my ever-loving mind Wait, by thinking that, that, that they were, that were appreci- I, that, that they could so do that. It sounds absurd that I don't think I quite followed you there. Okay. What happened? For the, for the uninitiated, um, we have several professional post-nominal letters that mean things. Clinical social workers, and I'm talking about just mental health people of the master's level degree who can um, be licensed and do therapy, basically. You got psychologists clinical social workers, marriage and family therapists, professional counselors. Professional counselors go by various names. LPC, MHC, mental health counselor, licensed professional counselor. In Nevada, they're called clinical professional counselors. Um, Psychiatrists can do it, but they make way more money um, prescribing medicines. So they can do talk therapy, but that's not their primary bailiwick. Anyway, in Nevada... We were the only state in the country in 2019 when we passed this law to restore parity that didn't allow its professional counselors to treat couples and families. By law, they were disallowed from treating couples and families because the marriage and family therapist, of which I am one, said, no one can do this well except for us. And we were the last holdout. Heads popped when I dared present that professional counselors, CPCs, should be able to treat couples and families. And oh, by the way, at the time, and still true today, Nevada's dead last in behavioral counseling, uh, sorry, behavioral care um, provision. A lot of it was due to our licensing board prohibiting CPCs or you know LPCs everywhere else from treating couples and families. 
Prohibited by law. Only social workers can, is what you're talking about. Social workers, marriage and family therapists, psychologists. But the marriage and family therapists had a big problem with this because the marriage and family therapists and the professional counselors shared a licensing board. So the MFTs put their thumb on the backs of the CPCs and said, no, you can only do individual. It's like, all right, well, what does that even mean? Like, So it removes the free market for the patient to decide who's better at this and who's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that. Sure. Yeah. But but they hid behind the shield of uh, competence and harm upon the population because you're not well-trained and all the things in air quotes that I don't care to get into at these points. But point is, I I was the one calling that the emperor wasn't actually an emperor and heads popped. And I've lost most of my professional colleagues in the MFT community because of it, at least in Northern Nevada. There's other people rem- out there who support that. You know, it reminds that, me of the AMA. Like the oh, the AMA, or- the AAP too. The, the American AAP, Academy of Pediatrics is doing. What they were doing, doing with the COVID, right? Uh, all of it. Um, they're, yeah. still, they're still advocating masking of children. Are you out of your and, mind? And honestly, what is it for the uh, uh, physicians? Like there's only like 13% that belong to it, yet they speak for everybody? Well, and we can analogize that to the NRA too. As we, we talked about guns earlier. A lot of people are like, the NRA, the big 500-pound gorilla in Congress or whatever. It's like the NRA at its peak, most people don't know this, claimed – Five million members, and we we think that's probably overblown because there's paid members, and then there's members who you never kicked off the rolls. And anyway, point is, they claim five million members about their peak, which is several years ago. Before the gun buying spree of 2021-2020, when we had approximately fifteen to twenty new twenty million new gun owners in the country, people who never bought guns before. We had about 100 to 110 million people in the country owning firearms. So let's do the math on that. 5 million NRA members at its peak, probably overblown. 100 million people, probably more than that, who own guns. That's 5%. <laughs> like, That's but unbelievable. The, but the NRA is like the big 500-pound gorilla, right? It's like, yeah, or... Because people believe that NRA just, make policy, but... Right, they just have an outsized voice in the in the battle. It's like... Well, Look, you know, but there's also, you know, this is the other thing that Vaclav Havel talks about, too, is that, you know, when it when there are no voices, you know, I mean, listen, one thing that I. I yeah. I'd yeah. Like what what do you, you what are you going to do with your your mask uh, opposition? You really going to move the nail? It's like, well, a whole bunch of us writing in might. If I don't, well, I, I mean, know I'm going to be wearing a mask for a while. Well, also the power of saying no. I mean, look. Yeah. One thing I will tell you, and this is an interesting phenomenon, I think you'll appreciate this, being somebody who moved from New York to Florida, right? Mm -hmm. And I never understood. Like, I could intellectually explain to you why there was a Second Amendment. I could not tell you why it was a natural right. I thought I could, but I couldn't. I was the same way, by the way, if I may interrupt. Before I joined up with Walk the Talk America, I didn't get it. I I was one of those... Nobody needs an AR-15, guys. I owned one, but I was like, I don't, yeah, I don't really need one. It's not about need. But go well, on. It's, you know what's funny, and I'll speak say to this, speak of this as a woman, right, specifically, mm-hmm. and as somebody who lived in New York, and you know, you when when people used to come to visit us from Soviet Romania, and even my mother, she she would be the first to say this. She didn't understand the First Amendment until she was here for a while. And that's how I feel about the second one now. Mm. So I can tell you the moment that I got it, if I think it might interest you, and I think it might interest your listeners. Um, 
So, you know, this is a um, concealed carry state, not an open carry state. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of like that. And yeah, I'll explain to you I, why. I don't, I don't Actually, like open carry, but go on. No, but let me t- let me tell you why I like it. It's 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 a funny thing, and and, and I like it in part because I can have Schrodinger's gun. <laughs> and that's really good. Let me good. explain to you what I mean. So I came here, and I was in a um, you know I've I've been in New York where basically you know if the hero is toil and the toiler is unthinkable outside the collective. Um it's an automatic victim culture right now. I had a gun put on my head and if I, if he had thought maybe I had a gun, who knows what would have happened in New York. I, my best friend was murdered in New York. If they thought maybe he had a gun, who knows what would have happened Mm -hmm. now. Conceptually, I could have argued that over and over again. So I came here and I went to a home goods for like the first time. And my God, home goods is like addictive. If you've never seen one before. Yes. And I come out of the home goods and I'm in the parking lot. And I'm driving a convertible, putting some stuff in the car, and I hear a voice behind me say, excuse me. And I turn, and I still have my New York temperament, but I'm still a little jumpy because of everything I've recently been through. And I turn, and I see this man, and I very quickly find myself doing a, as a New Yorker, I do just a quick assessment. What do I see? Mm-hmm. And what I see is somebody who the odds he's concealing is pretty slim, pretty slim. You know, he's not wearing pants, he's wearing shorts. It's possible. It's all possible. But he also kind of looks like a functioning addict is what he looks like. Mm. He's, you know, um, and and he basically immediately says to me, oh, oh, don't worry, I won't come any closer. And my immediate response is a very New Yorker was like, hey, I'm used to close. I'm not worried about it. What can I do for you? And I'm getting into my car. In this moment, I immediately get into my car to sit in it because... Schrodinger's gun. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting in the go- in the car. I said, what can I do for you? And he starts basically giving me this. Uh, oh, before I'm even sitting in the car, he says, where are you from? And I said, New York. He goes, oh, fist bump, Ron Konkama. And trust me on this, there is no way this guy's from New York. We're like puppies when we recognize <laughs> each other here. We're like we're immediately like puppies. Yeah. And there's no way. I mean, this is so nice. Like fist bump, New York. I'm like, okay, whatever, dude. You know, and he says, that means you can tell a bullshit artist. And I'm like, yep. And you're about 50% bullshitting right now. What can I do for you? That's actually the, the exact conversation, yeah. the way it began. And he says, you know, he starts telling me this whole story about his car ran out of gas, blah, blah, blah. And in my brain, I'm like, oh. It's the, I need a MetroCard hustle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? We've seen him. So I offer him, I said, well, I can go and get you some gas now. I don't have any cash. I moved here. I don't carry cash. I can go and get you some, bring it back to you in a, ta- you know, in a thing. Or, you know, I can go get it. I said, if there's something, I can get you with the credit card. And he's like, oh, no. And he starts to pull back and walk away. And I notice he walks out of the parking lot. There's no car anywhere. Right. So I no him. gas tank. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I had Schrodinger's gun. And it felt amazing. And I and immediately I thought to myself, because I just moved here. And I thought to myself, what was that about? Why does this feel so amazing? And I realized I was used to a place where my first concern isn't the fact that I have a right to be alive. Period. My first concern has to be Oh, poor guy. What's he thinking? Why would he be doing this? Why would, mm. you know, all of that stuff. The hero is toil. The guy coming up with me. And the toiler is unthinkable outside the collective. I have to join that collective. And I don't. And I'm not. And that presence has actually 
been used for me a few times. I actually had somebody approach me once and I just stood there and said, step back. And he not only stepped back, he was like, whoa. And I'm like, great. What do you want? You know, I can have this. Nope. Step back. And he did. Awesome. And it allowed me to experience what it was like to have a government that put first and foremost my right to be alive and unharmed above and beyond and also that responsibility what that means so if i did something irresponsibly but i'm seen as an adult an autonomous adult and that experience changed it all for me and since then you know i when i've gone to the range and when i've you know everything else i've done since then it's imbued in me and why i like concealed is because I like being able to walk into a place and know that probably 80 to 90% of the people in this space with me are armed. Yeah. And that's awesome. And I'm not alone. And I don't need to be braggadocious about it. I can, you know, if I, for example, if I'm wearing something that, you know, my concealment doesn't work so well, I can actually lean a little bit on somebody else. And it feels more like we all understand that our right to live and pursue happiness to pursue happiness that right of to pursue means to live like that act of being able to pursue it is a responsibility it's a collaborative it's a collaborative experience and the only time that i felt a little off about it to be frank with you is when i because i was never pulled over in my life because i even when i was driving in jersey i've never but i first time i was pulled over i see somebody oh police window fully with the you know everything looking like a they don't like the militarized police yeah. and at one point i actually just said to the officer i said listen i just moved from new york i'm not armed <laughs> you know chill a little bit because she actually had no real reason to pull me over. It doesn't matter. Nothing actually ended up happening. I was I was being accused potentially of a crime because I was living here long and I still own an apartment in New York. When they asked me, do you still have anything in New York? I said, yes, one big thing. Yeah. My property. I haven't got my new license yet because yeah. I haven't settled in yet. That's being resolved. But my point being that there's a give and take with mm -hmm. this. And I understand that. And that's that can make me uncomfortable. But I dig the fact that I can have Schrodinger's gun. Like it. I think that's a really good place to stop. Sure. Channeling my inner Jordan Peterson. Um, we've gone almost two hours. I've enjoyed all of it, as I do every time we talk. And I and think you know, covered a lot. And I just will say again, at OANA for some stuff, but also please visit Radio Orchid and buy tickets for the June 15th, 16th, or 17th production before they sell out. We may add a matinee if necessary, but um, it's an exceptional play about how totalitarianism encroaches on the human soul and how to fight for one's own humanity and what it takes because as you know, UNESCO says, the supreme trick of mass insanity is that it persuades you that the only abnormal person is the one who refuses to join in the madness of others, the one who tries vainly to resist. We will never understand totalitarianism if we do not understand that people rarely have the strength to be uncommon. And thank you, Jake, for having that strength. Thanks for thinking that I do. Uh, I know you do. Just one foot in front of the other, I guess, and appreciate you. So I appreciate you too. Uh, thanks for carving out the time. I have a full bladder. I'm going to go empty it. Uh, on behalf of the Naga Notes family, 
from Cambodia to South Africa to the United States. And on behalf of our Zephyr Wellness family here in northern Nevada, we wish you all great mental wellness. Thank you, Juana. You're welcome to the free state of Florida. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, all. Bye.